Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Tonight, I'm joined by award-winning poet and author, Fran Abrams. She has been in a number of journals, in over a dozen anthologies, and in November of 2022, she published her autobiographical book, (laughs) oh my God, I wrote the second wave of feminist friends. I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> I'll help you out. Oh, hey, hey, hey. I, <laughs> Do you I know wrote a, the second wave of feminist memoir. Yes. <laughs> there is uh, a club out there, a group of people, <laughs> counting the number of times that I've flubbed an opening. So add that one to the list. Friend, welcome to the program. Thank you. (laughs) All right, friend. Let's begin this poetic journey. All right. What is poetry, friend? Oh, my. To me, poetry is words that express more than what is actually on the page. It has layers of meaning, nuances, and it's also language that is musical, rhythmic, has an interest in sound. So it has, to me, it's those two things blended together, the layers of meaning and the use of sound. Now, when you say layers of meaning, break that down for me. Tell me more. Well, when you read poems, if they're good, I feel, you need to read them more than once. Because the first time you're going to get the obvious meaning and the second or third or fourth time, you're going to find the underlying meanings and the nuances of what the author is trying to express. All right. So why is poetry important? Why is it important that we do what we do as poets? I think it's important because it allows us to express those thoughts that are not direct. This is not a lecture on, um, you know, how to build a house or how to repair a car. It's something that goes much further than that. And it's important because it brings us hopefully back to ourselves. It tells a story in a way that we then can come back to ourselves and feel something that we've not felt before. Mm. To feel something we've not felt before. Give me a little bit more with that concept. Well, I hope that when you read this book, mm-hmm. you know that it's an autobiographical story. Right. But I hope that you'll also feel the anguish at times and the frustration and the other feelings the author, namely me, is feeling through this book. All right. So you get not just the words, but the sense of where I was at that time 
and what I was feeling and hopefully feel empathy okay. for that. Oh, I love that word empathy. That is so important in our time. Empathy is critical. Hopefully we can talk about it more later. Now, the title of your autobiographical book, I Wrote the Second Wave, a Feminist Memoir. Tell me about that title. Well, when I started writing it, I realized, well, even before I started writing it, I realized that my life had paralleled the second wave of feminism, Mm -hmm. the second wave being the time period starting in the 60s when women were beginning to look for equal opportunities to work and to I don't want to say do more than motherhood, but do mm-hmm. other things besides motherhood, because motherhood is certainly an important job. Yes. But Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, showed that there were women out there who really wanted to do something fulfilling on their own. And I was 19 at that time. All right. And that's the... That was the theme that I wanted to bring to my book. And interestingly enough, mm-hmm. I went looking for a book that did what I wanted to do, and I didn't find it. Okay. There, there are histories of the women's movement, most certainly, but I never found a book that was personal, that was autobiographical, that talked about this period of history and how one woman experienced it. And that's what I wanted to do. All right. So as you think about the predominant themes in the book, tell me more about the themes. The predominant theme in the book is we can't go back. Okay. Um, The 50s and the 60s were not the good old days as far Mm -hmm. as women were, were concerned. Yes. The 50s and the 60s were times when women were the the ideal job for women was considered motherhood. And there are many people today still believe that. And unfortunately, many of them are elected officials. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, it's really important that the feminist movement not go away because our goals have not been achieved. I often Mm -hmm. say to people, the Civil Rights Act was signed in 1964. Yes. The Equal Rights Amendment has never been signed. So that's where we stand today. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it's the thread that I hope comes through from the book that we need to be, we need to keep moving forward. And ever vigilant, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You talk about some real thoughtful things. Now, what was the the selection process like? How did you go about deciding which poems to choose for the book? That's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to redeem poems. myself. <laughs> All right, <go> on. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. <laughs> oh, I, please don't be mad I at wrote, me. <laughs> I wrote um, more than a hundred poems. Oh wow. And there are, I think, 71 in the book. Um, And I wanted the poems to focus on two things. One was my own personal experience. And two 
was what was going on in the country during that time. So there's a poem about an experience I had in a railroad station in Ohio where the station was segregated. There's a poem about the Women's March for Equality in 1970. Mm -hmm. Those are in there as the background information, the context, if you will, for what was going on in my life. So those are the poems that I included. And believe me, I had to be ruthless. Um, I I had written an entire chapter about my early childhood, and Mm -hmm. that went out the window when I realized it was cute but had nothing to do with the story that I wanted to come across in the book. So... Uh, I was, with the help of my editor at Atmosphere Press, mm-hmm. I really went through each poem and decided if it was worth keeping or not. All right. So in terms of organization of the poems in the book, is the book broken up into sections, chapters? Talk- there are three chapters in the book, and they mm-hmm. take you through my life chronologically. There's a section about childhood. Uh, Later, it's called the girl's education. And then there's a section about college and grad school. And then there's a section about marriage, motherhood, and career. And so it's organized and see the course of my life over the course of the book. I'd like you to share with me the titles of five of the poems in the book. (laughs) Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. we're going to be okay, friend. We're going to be okay. <laughs> um, we're going to be okay. <laughs> the, first, um, the first poem in the book is called Before the Revolution. Wow. Um, another poem is called Was There Ever a Year Like 1959, mm-hmm. which is one that I love. Um, there's a book called te- a poem called Teacher for the Day, mm-hmm. preparing to be a home, preparing to become a homemaker. Um, there's poems about my kids, oh, pink right. fluffy baby bunting, mm-hmm. and then there were two. So that's I think that may be six poems, but those All are right. some of the titles. Tell me about titling poems. Why is it important to you? Oh, I think it's one of the hardest things to do. But I think it's important because you want to, A, draw the reader in, and B, not give it away. Okay. (laughs) For you, what comes first, the title or the poem? um, I usually write a temporary title. Okay. And then I write the poem and then I go back and say, is this really the best title? And I work on it. I am very into revision. So I spend a lot of time looking for just the right word in every, every line. Um, it's very important to me All right. to try to put just the word, right word out there. And that goes for the title as well. All right, all right. Now, how often are you successful in that regard? 
I mean, do you stress yourself out in terms of it's potentially not working or you're easy on yourself? Oh, I think I'm harder on myself than anyone else. But <laughs> okay. I do, but I do rely on um, a workshopping group that I'm in, okay. and I okay. I appreciate the feedback that I get from them. So any right. chance, anytime I have a chance to workshop a poem, I really appreciate that input because what I think something means may not be what the reader is seeing or, or hearing, and so feedback from someone who is essentially cold reading it is uh, is very valuable. Okay, okay. Now, as you think about your book, are you attempting to resonate with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? Well, I hope that men will read the book, but I expect that it will appeal mostly to women. Mm-hmm. I would like for it to appeal to younger women. And I've had some very positive reaction from younger women because I would Mm -hmm. like for them to understand how much there still is to lose. Uh, But I think it also appeals to people my age. Just listening to you talk, I can hear the, the passion in your voice. Well, I am passionate. And I have to tell you, um, mm-hmm. in, in case it's not immediately obvious, but I'm 78 years old. Oh, no, really? Wow. Yes, really. <laughs> so I lived this. Yes, and, I understand. Um, so this is not intended to be an autobiographical story, mm-hmm. purely. In other words, it isn't everything that ever happened in my life. It's a memoir, which means it has a point to be made. And because I lived it, I feel very strongly about the point that I'm trying to make. So if you were with a group, a crowd, and the crowd was lined up to purchase your book in front of a Barnes & Noble, and they wanted to find some advice from you before they purchased the book, what would you share with them? What type of advice would you give them before they read it? Well, first, I would say the book is very accessible. Okay. Which, which is to say, we lost Fran. She'll be back. So hold on. It's going to be a bumpy ride, but we're going to be okay. We're together.
Fran is back, hopefully. This is live, live, a live podcast, everyone. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Fran, we lost you. I'm, I know. <laughs> I, my uh, computer decided it had heard enough. I don't know what to say. <laughs> oh, I'm, sure. I'm sure others have felt the same way too. <laughs> but so. you and me, friend, we're together. We're together. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we were standing outside Barnes and Noble. Yes. yes. <laughs> Just me and you and 500 people. <laughs> and you were going right. to tell them something. Yes. <laughs> so, did you hear what I had said? No, I did or not. No, I did not. Okay. So, what I had said is that the book um, is easy to read. It's very, it's narrative driven, and that if you enjoy history and if you are interested in women's history at all, that you'll find it appealing. Hmm. When I looked at the cover of the book, I really wanted to know more about it. Where is that scene? That was taken on August 26, 1970, in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., oh, really? probably near Farragut Square. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was the day, and, and um, let's see, that poem is in the book about the, uh, the march that day. There was a very large march going on in New York City that day, Mm -hmm. and there were many, shall I say, sister marches going on around the country. And as it happened, uh, the cover designer was able to find that photo of the march that was going on in D.C. at that time. So that was pretty exciting for me to have it on the cover. And if you could see, it... it, uh, actually spread further to the right and the left, and you could see that one of the signs says GWU, Women for Equality. Oh, wow. But that didn't make it under the cover. So, All right. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's local. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd like to know, what did you learn about yourself, friend, writing this book? Who are you now? I... <laughs> Well, fortunately, I'm a happily retired uh, grandmother right, right now. Very nice. Yes. But I learned that I really wanted to share this with my granddaughter, that I really wanted to share this with people who might not understand what had happened and how far we've come and how far we have yet to go. So I – and I learned – when I started putting the pieces together in terms of looking for the context, what was going on at that time, and comparing it to what was going on in my life, I learned or I rediscovered things about myself that I hadn't really thought of in a long, long time. Mm. So, for example, the availability of birth control pills Mm -hmm. took place in 1961. It was the first time that birth control pills were generally available, although many doctors would only give them to women who were married. But I got birth control pills before I went to college. 
1962. Mm-hmm. And that affected the way that I behaved in college. And I think it affected the way many women behaved during the 60s. You hear a lot about the sexual freedom of the 60s, and that's one of the reasons. And so right. putting those two pieces together was really very enlightening. I hadn't really remembered it that way, and then I realized that's what had happened. So I definitely learned a lot. But I you know, I'm, started I'm looking well, I'm better. looking forward to hearing your work. There's something about your voice that makes me want to listen. It, it, well, thank it, you. It, it draws a person in. Well, may I tell you that I was the the announcer for the morning announcements when I was a senior in high school. You could have listened to me every morning say, good morning, please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Very so, nice. That was fun. Well, let's begin. My first. <laughs> well, let's begin this forward journey, friend. I can't wait. Please share a poem. Okay. This is the first poem in the book. It's called Before the Revolution. Dear reader, I want to tell you, unless you too were there, what life was like in the years before women revolted. Newspapers separated ads for jobs by gender, help-wanted men, and help-wanted women. Women were paid less than men for the same work when they could get it. Women who worked outside their homes mostly held positions deemed appropriate for their gender, nurses, teachers, librarians, social workers. Many of those jobs were held by childless women or single women who later gave up their jobs when they married. No women served as firefighters or police officers. None served on the Supreme Court. No women ran big corporations or universities. Women in the U.S. Senate held seats vacated by deceased husbands. Banks routinely denied women credit or loans without a male cosigner, father, or husband. It wasn't until 1974 that Congress acted to allow a woman to get credit in her own name. Some states did not allow women to serve on juries. All hurricanes had female names. Abortion was illegal. Most women stayed home, cooked meals, cleaned house, and cared for children. Motherhood was held up as the ideal. Finding a husband was often the primary goal of female college students. But many wondered, is this all there is? Do I feel feel fulfilled as a homemaker, or is there another part of me hoping to be liberated? Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, revealed that women who felt they were missing out on careers were not alone. The revolution began. That's the first one. What was the purpose of that piece? It's beautiful. What was the purpose of it? 
the purpose of it was to set the scene. Okay. Um, to have people understand where we're starting from. Mm-hmm. To um, take them back, if they've been there themselves. Um, and it's not, I, I can't tell you how many people laugh when I get to the all hurricanes at female names. <laughs> All right. These days they alternate male and female, but you know that there were so many things like that that were just part of the culture, and I wanted that to introduce the bones. Well, speaking of going back, please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. Oh, hmm. I think probably the classes that I took at the Writers' Center in Bethesda was okay. the eye-opening part of my experience with poetry. I only decided to write poetry a little over five years ago. Really? And wow. Yes. <laughs> I thought you had been at it a very long time. Really, I did. <laughs> um, well, I wrote for a very long time. Mm-hmm. The 41 years that I was in the workplace. I wrote legislation and guidelines and regulations and memos and reports and Lord knows what else. All right. And when I, after I retired and realized that I really missed using my words, mm-hmm. I decided that if I wanted to do something different but still be writing, that maybe poetry was what I wanted. All right. All right. And so I took some classes at the Writers' Center and one of my very first instructors said to me, hmm, you seem to have a knack for this. Yes. So yes. that was all I needed, and I was off and running. So right. I still take classes, and I still enjoy learning about the power of language. And sometimes when I finish writing a poem mm-hmm. that I think is particularly successful, mm-hmm. I just, it takes my breath away. I'm like, <laughs> wow, I really got out what I wanted to get out. Very nice. <laughs> Please share another. Okay. Let's see. Um, this is a poem that's a little bit difficult to read and listen to, and I, but it is a true story. It's called It Doesn't Add Up. A crush on my eighth grade math teacher, Daydreams. He asked to see me after school, offered to drive me home, touched my thigh as he drove, told me I was very pretty. How should I act? What was I supposed to say? He asked when he could see me alone. I told him he could visit me Saturday night, babysitting at a neighbor's home. Part of me was flattered. Another part worried. I was doing something wrong. He showed up, sat next to me on the sofa, turned me to face him, kissed me, stroked my back, tried to push his hand between my legs. Oh, my goodness, I'm kissing a grown man, my teacher. The neighbor's children are asleep upstairs. I jumped off the sofa. I don't think this is a good idea, I managed to tell him. I think you shouldn't be here. He gave me a sad look, left the house. Some part of me knew it could have been a disaster. Part of me was confused, 
Why didn't the adult know that? I worried I would be blamed for what had not happened. Wow. That's, that's that one. Yes. Thank you for sharing. Um, I figured if I could put it in writing, I could I could read it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So then, sure. is a poem is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? I think a poem is letting your guard down. Talk to me. I think it needs to be if you're really going to communicate with your reader, it needs to let the reader in, and walls don't let the reader in. So um, I almost didn't publish this book. Mm. I was very, I got it accepted by Atmosphere Press, and then I told them I I couldn't do it. And then the timing was such that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Mm -hmm. And then Atmosphere called me back and said, are you sure you don't want to publish this? And I said, yes, it's time. I need to get this out there. So there's definitely a lot of personal information, but I really, really feel, given where this country is right now, Mm. that I needed to put it out there, and to the extent that people read it, I hope they'll take from it the message that I want them to hear, which is we can't go back. Wow. Now, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? <laughs> no, actually, it, it doesn't hurt me to write poetry because it's a very cathartic experience. All right, then. So, and, and sometimes I even I write poems that I never share. Mm-hmm. But it's not a matter of hurt. It's a matter of getting it on paper, and then it's out there instead of inside. Please share another piece. Certainly. This one is called Career Plans, and it talks about what happened to me in college and how I didn't quite make it to where I thought I was going. Career Plans. I always loved looking at buildings, wondering how architects made the decisions they did. I thought a career in architecture would combine my love of art and math. I didn't know then how few women architects were licensed. With good grades, I was accustomed to success. My first year in college, I was one of two women in freshman architecture class. Of all the students, I was named most likely to succeed. I got A's in calculus and engineering, B's in my design classes, until junior year, a D on a house design project, graded by one professor for a five-credit-hour class. The department chair asked me to lead the architecture program. He suggested I might like interior design instead. I knew it was a sexist judgment. Like a helpless ball in a pinball machine, hit by a pivotal arm, my life careened in a new direction. My mother had died just as school began that year. I had no emotional energy to protest. I transferred to a liberal arts program 
to major in art and architecture. Now I needed credits in languages and literature, social mm-hmm. studies, and history. I realized how much I had missed. French and German courses in the same semester, trying to keep my flashcards in the right piles. Class required reading, literary fiction, and poetry. I recalled how much I had enjoyed high school English. A class called Urban Geography taught how cities are formed, hinted at a profession called Urban Planner. Intrigued, I researched prospects, found there were women in this field. Urban planning was my new career choice. After all the added classes, I finished college in August. Not dissuaded, I would one day fulfill the prediction, most likely to succeed. Mm. Fran, what does it mean to you to be a woman, a woman poet? Well, gee, I've never thought about that um, other than writing this book. I think mm-hmm. that in terms of being a woman poet, it means that I probably write on topics that are not likely to be written about by men. I've written okay. many, many poems about being a mother, being mm-hmm. a grandmother. But on the other hand, I also write poems that I think anyone could have written. Uh, my next collection that's coming out is about math and science. They're humorous poems. Okay. And I think that anyone who devoted to math and science um, could have written them. So I think it, it's, the answer to your question is, it depends. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Please share another piece. I love hearing your voice and your work. So please favor us with another. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is called The Feminist Encounters Reality. And it takes place after I finished graduate school, had my degree in urban planning, and was full of myself and ready to take the world by storm. The Feminist Encounters Reality. I was a feminist with a master's degree in urban planning who believed a woman could have a career. My first job interview after graduate school, 1969, upscale blue and gray conference room. When do you plan to marry? How long will you work before you start a family? I'm sure my dismay showed on my face. My interviewers assumed working and motherhood were mutually exclusive. I planned to marry a year after graduating. Children were in our plans as eventually. The man who hired me for my first job as associate urban planner asked, where do you see yourself in five years? A brilliant question. I could have answered, I plan to work for four years, then quit work to start a family. Or answer as I did. I hope to work and be promoted through higher job levels to accept more challenges here in county government. I realized later it was a man's answer. No matter, it was true. I got the job. I worked harder than men in my office. Women had to prove they had a right to hold jobs, usually held by men. I got promoted over men in my office, 
became director of a small office of 14 men and one black woman, our administrative assistant. I wore pantsuits on the job, among the first women in county government who did. I treasured the look on my boss's face the first time I wore my matching pale pink suit jacket and slacks. Life felt manageable. I was on the road to achieving my career goals. Mm. That's that one. Tell me, if you can, about feminism. What that means to you? That, to me, means equal rights and equal opportunities. Okay. It's not, it's not that, <laughs> it's not that feminists are anti-men. They're mm-hmm. anti the culture. It has brought us to this point where men are assumed to be better at leadership. Men are assumed to be smarter. Men are assumed to be more capable, more competent. That's the, the cultural norms that persist in many places today. And to me, feminism means uh, women should have an equal chance, equal opportunity, and, of course, equal pay for mm-hmm. doing the same work that men do. Mm-hmm. So, and that, I feel, is what the Equal Rights Amendment is all about. Yes. Which yes. still we still have a ways to go. Just listening to your voice, I keep saying it. I keep saying it, and I probably will again. But I'll ask you this question. You talked about Betty Friedan. You know, all great writers, and I put you in that category, have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them great in your eyes? Mm. Well, interestingly enough, because of the way that I came at poetry, Mm -hmm. um, many of the women whose work I read to begin with are local writers. So I wasn't influenced so much by um, well-known poet laureates and so on. I was influenced more by local people whose work was readily accessible to me. So I would cite Grace Calamari, who is who was the poet laureate of Maryland, and um, whose whose book of poems was really one of the very first books of poetry I ever read. And I've kept up with all the books. I think I've read everything. Um, And then there's a woman named Sue Ellen Thompson, whose classes I took and whose work I really admire. And her work had an effect on me as well. Um, And there are others. There are certainly um, men as well. I have several good friends who are uh, published authors, and their work has influenced me as well. I'm especially fond of the work of Luther Jett, who's published several books, maybe five or six now. Mm -hmm. And I have been very fortunate to go to to have discovered, as if I discovered them, the uh, mm-hmm. diverse reading group in Gaithersburg, and okay. I try to go to their their sessions, and so I'm always discovering um, new poets, poets who are new to me, uh, by mm-hmm. listening to the readings that they hold. So 
they they might be poets who are well basically in the greater metropolitan area, DC area. All right. All right. Let's take a brief break. And we'll okay. be right back. We are back because the brief break we're going to take, something is wrong with the sound system, and the music is not playing. What kind of night? I'm going to have to invite you back so we can do it right. <laughs> it's just twirling around. It's not even. It's, no sound is coming out. Of Friend, what has happened? I'm here. I'm here. Oh boy! All I can do is laugh instead of cry. All right. That's right. What, That's right. Oh. What do you think makes your writing unique and different from others? Hmm. Well, I think it's a very narrative style um, in that it's, it is storytelling, perhaps more so than, than others. Um, and in this particular case, it is very much storytelling because I wanted to have a beginning and a middle and an end and actually um, make it clear where I was going with the story. So it's not always quite this narrative, but often it is. And I really enjoy writing poems that have an ending that give a little twist that really make you stop and think. You know, so other some poets, poets do that as well. Yes, <laughs> but, they do. Yes, they do. And I was thinking, you know, as you move into another kind of segment here, that some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's up, but you can do to correct or improve it. While others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take there? And you talked about it briefly on the editing process. I tend to probably do 12, 14 versions of every poem that I plan to publish. Wow. So I. And I don't do them all at one sitting. I think okay. that's the other really important thing is let it sit. Come mm-hmm. back to it a couple of days later and then go through it again. Because it's amazing what you see when you come back to it and you go, how could I have used that word? That's not the word I meant. Mm-hmm. Or that line break makes no sense at all and I need to fix it. So I tend to write poems over a period of time and revise them over a period of time so that I, I never believe that the first words I put down on paper are mm-hmm. the, the words that I'm going to use. Sometimes I'm lucky. Sometimes I feel as if the poem was in my head the whole time and all yes. I had to do was write it down. Mm-hmm. 
but mm-hmm. most of the time I take the time to to look at it again and again to make sure I have the words that I want. And the most important thing is not to wring the life out of it when making revisions. Yes. Because you can really make it dreadful if you overdo it. <laughs> Has it ever happened that you've over over overworked it? Oh, oh absolutely. And the <laughs> one thing that's important is to save every dang version so that you can go back to version 7 and say, I'm going to start over again from here and forget about the others, you know, and, and just start again. So, How would you classify your ability to write as a creative gift or a creative art? I'm sorry, I didn't catch all that. My ability to write as a creative gift or a creative art? Is it a gift or an art? It's an art. Talk and I you. say that because, <laughs> yes, I, I spent 20 years as a visual artist. Oh, did you? My wow. original training, mm-hmm. uh, my original training, as I mentioned in an earlier poem, is in art and architecture. And my first instinct after I retired was to get away from words. Mm-hmm. And I became a visual artist. And I really spent, put in the time to study the medium that I was working in, which is called polymer clay. All right. And and I really believe it's a craft. You have to study it. You have to know what your material will do and what it won't do. And Mm -hmm. then you can be creative once you understand what the material can do. And... I feel the same way about words. Mm -hmm. It's a creative art. You need to understand what the words can do. You need to understand the impact of putting different words together, of using alliteration or assonance, the use of line breaks. It's a craft, and I studied it intensively. And Mm -hmm. after that, you can apply your creativity to it. And... Mm -hmm understand how to get the results that you want in your creative material, which is words. Please share another poem. Sure. This is called Working Mother, and this is the point at which I went from being a married person who was working to being a mother who was working. And this has an epigraph. The test for whether or not you can hold a job should not be the arrangement of your chromosomes. Bella Absog. Married for six years, in love with my husband and my job, Jared and I made plans to start a family. They say, man plans, God laughs. God was laughing the day my boss and the county executive offered me a position as department director, head of environmental protection, a political appointment requiring confirmation by the county council, a position I would lose if the county executive was not reelected, a position with responsibility for more than 350 people and a multi-million dollar budget, a department currently directed by a man about to be fired for accepting favors from people doing business 
with the agency. Deep breath. I told them, I'm pregnant. That's wonderful, was the reply. Just let us know what you need. Some time off and a sofa in my office, I answered, in case I need to put my feet up. I should have known these men were feminists. They sent me to get photographed, a headshot for press releases. Every time it appeared in print, I remembered being pregnant. County Council held a confirmation hearing. By then, I was obviously pregnant. One council member, an older man, made the inevitable inquiry. Why does a nice girl like you want a job like this? A collective gasp from the audience. I was the only one not surprised by the question. I answered as I had in my first job interview. I want the challenge. I have the experience. I am the best person for the job. I was a woman in a man's job. I did it pregnant. I did it while raising a baby. An article in the Washington Post style section showcased me, my job, and my baby. Women in the workforce were becoming news in 1977 when that story appeared. That that was a highlight. Oh, it's a very powerful piece. And I'm sitting here thinking, she writes about stuff that I would never (laughs) imagine. In terms of your lived experience, your life, and to me, lived experiences are the stories that people share about themselves and their collective world. I would never. That's exactly right. Thanks. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, no. That's a very good point because that is what this book is, is my lived experience. And And as I mentioned, one of the reasons I wanted to write it is because I felt that there was nothing out there like this. Mm-hmm. There certainly were historical accounts of the women's movement, but nothing about the lived experience. So when did you attend your first march? I did not. Um, I'm in the crowds. I am not good with with crowds. And the only time I attended a march, I got separated from the people I was with, mm-hmm. and I... Or I'd never do it again. Okay. So I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a marcher. Okay. <laughs> I'm just a doer. Okay. <laughs> and I. <laughs> and however, I do. I do want to say. Yeah. I do want to say that I was a member of Now, and I firmly believe that a lot gets accomplished when people get together in groups, and it's many women who had marched for civil rights. We're there marching for women's rights. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's an important event. It's important that it be done, and, but I, it's not for me. <laughs> All right. Tell me about a poem, friend, that you're very proud of writing, but were afraid to share for fear of misinterpretation. Oh, my well, I think that some of the poems I've written about political situations fall into that category. All right. 
I, I often write about what's going on in the news. Again, it's a way of processing it. Mm-hmm. And some of them, I think, are extremely on point, for lack of a better term. Okay. But I wouldn't share them because I don't think necessarily that other people would understand the point of view that I'm coming from, even possibly if they understood the, uh, if they had this, exactly the same political feelings I have. But um, although I can say that I, that a poem I just wrote about um, Roe v. Wade being overturned mm-hmm. was just accepted. Yes. Um, so I'm very proud of that. That uh, that obviously resonated with the people who are reading for this show. It's actually going to be part of a show at uh, the Gaithersburg Activity Center at Boer Park. Oh, There'll wow. be artwork very, hanging in, poetry hanging. Very nice. Has a poem that you've written ever frightened or humbled you? I think that probably the poems that frighten me are poems that talk about really difficult things that have happened in the news, like mm-hmm. a child disappearing or something that I feel very strongly could have happened in my own life, but yes. didn't. Mm-hmm. So I've written about um, you know, children who've been killed in D.C. and I, again, I don't share them, but it's something that that really does scare me because it's it's so many of those events. It, you can only say, "Thank God it wasn't me," and then yes. feel even worse for the family yes. that has happened to. Yes, you know, um, so much is happening in this world, and just kind of piggyback on that. There's the good the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Well, I think that a a poet should be making people think more deeply about all of those things Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that they can find an audience. Because, of course, we all know that a poet's work only gets circulated if someone decides to publish it. Right, right. And right. there are, fortunately, many outlets for current event poetry. And, of course, there are many poets, some of whom I know, who write amazing poems about current events and have made collections out of them that have been published. So... But I really think that to the extent that someone has that skill, it's important to use it and to make people think more clearly about those events. Um, I have a piece in a collection about Ukraine, for example. Do you know? And and I wrote a a poem about, as all the poems in this collection are, um, Mm -hmm. about the people of Ukraine. And I wrote a poem about the incredible confrontation um, when former President Trump um, 
when the streets were cleared in order to allow him to walk. I don't remember the exact circumstances even. Walk, I think it was to a church. Yes. And uh, people were tear gassed. Remember that. I wrote um, a poem about that, which did, in fact, get published. So it's not I, too far from where I live, when I, actually. <laughs> it's not too far from where I live. It, it, just, it horrified me, and and I wrote a poem about that. So I, I write about whatever grabs my attention. And sometimes it's just a phrase from something I've read. And I'll think, yeah, you know, if you take that thought three steps further, this is the poem. So, well... Should inspiration poets, comes from a lot of places. It does. So should poets be required to write about current events? Why can't they just write about rocks? I think there's something for everyone. <laughs> I don't think anyone should be required to write something that they don't feel moved to write. I'll, I'll work on a poem about rocks for you. Um, <laughs> in fact, I have a poem about rocks. Do you? I'll, I'll Please, you. Read Please read it. Um, Please read it. I do. <laughs> oh, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, you have it with you. <laughs> All right. Well, please share another piece. <laughs> Love that. Okay. Um, so one of the things that was going on in that time frame when I was raising two small children is that there was controversy as to whether and there still is, women should leave their children in the care of others. And what was it going to do to them? And these children were going to suffer because they've been in daycare and on and on. Studies have since shown that children are fine if they're in quality child care, not just in some Mm -hmm. awful place. Um, So this poem addresses that and the joy of raising children. It's called, And Then There Were Two. We had always wanted two children. Now we had two daughters, a grade schooler and an infant. We found before and after school for Nora and a family child care provider for Sarah. Jared and I still juggled our schedules to be sure both girls were delivered and picked up and both of us arrived at our offices on time. Each day was filled with the joy of discovery only a child's perspective can bring. Nora's first words were, Roy Rogers, perhaps we were relying on fast food a bit too often. Sarah's first full sentence was, man on back, standing up, as we drove behind an off-duty hook-and-ladder truck. Without children, would we have seen full-length cartoons at the movie theater or traveled to Disney World and had breakfast with Donald Duck. Our favorite summer vacation spot was Maine. One summer, four-year-old Nora decided to to declare the ocean hers, asked me to get people off her beach. Years later, Sarah, fascinated by seagulls, attempted a conversation with a bird seeking scraps at the shore as she squatted on her short legs to get eye level with the bird. Innumerable ear infections for both girls, middle-of-the-night runs to urgent care center. And how could I forget that time Nora hit her head 
on a bookcase at nursery school, requiring a visit to a neurologist. The only consequence, two worried parents who slept on the floor of her hospital room during a blizzard, not daring to risk the roads. When Sarah was just learning to walk, she disappeared out a screen door, left open only for a minute. Panicked, I found her at the bottom of the hill in our backyard, where she had rolled to a stop. And no, I was not going to let her do it again. Well-meaning friends wanted to know how I could leave my daughters and go to work. I knew I was a better mother because I was not with them all day. Children, they say, are sensitive to their parents' moods. I knew my children were happy when I was working to fulfill my dream of a career. Wow. And that's wow. that one. Wow. So I wanted to address that issue. Yes. And I really felt strongly that we were all happier. Because, okay. you know, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Hey, mama ain't happy. Nobody's happy. I've heard that one before. So, you know, we've reached a part of the program. Actually, it's my favorite part. I view it as being a mini, M-I-N-I, poetry concert. This is where you have an opportunity to share two or three of your works without any interruptions from me. Back to back. Are you ready? Because you're on the stage. I am ready. I'm going right. to read the last, <laughs> the last two poems in the book. The first, or penultimate, that's one of my favorite words. The penultimate poem is called Looking Back. My mother taught first grade, one of many mothers who worked outside the home in the 1940s and 50s in jobs society deemed appropriate for women, teachers, librarians, social workers, nurses. After school, my grandmother, Nana, took care of my sister and me. Nana had worked as a buyer for a women's clothing chain. Retired and widowed, she moved in with us. It never occurred to me that I would grow up and not have a career. My 1962 high school yearbook shows many entries by women whose goals were to become a secretary, then marry the boss. In college, I met women who were there for an MRS. Their college degree would get them through until they found a husband. I finished graduate school and went to work in 1969, married in 1970, became a mother who worked outside the home in 1976 headed back to my job eight weeks after each of my daughters was born. Working Mother Magazine, established for, quote, career committed working mothers, end quote, was first published in 1979. I was ahead of the curve. When I retired from full-time employment in 2010, 41 years after I started my first job, women in the workforce were not unusual. Women in leadership roles were steadily increasing. Women's work now, not only in the home, but wherever women set their sights. And finally, this is the poem from which the title of the book comes. Although I must say that the poem and the title and everything kind of came together 
It's called, I Rode the Second Wave of Feminism. I did not propel the wave. I witnessed those who gave it power, admired Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem, read Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963. I was 19. I rode the wave, almost round at times, when my mother died and architecture school dismissed me halfway through my junior year of college. I got up again, marched back into the surf, rode the wave, exhilarated by possibilities, views from the crests. Married woman, woman working, working mother. My wish is for younger women, my own daughters and granddaughter, to find their waves, take a deep breath, climb confidently onto their boards. Wow. And that's the end. Do you think you were meant to be a poet, Fran? I think I was meant to be a writer of some sort. Okay, okay. After 41 years of writing all kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, I can tell you that poetry feels very much like me, much mm-hmm. more so even than the visual art that I did for 20 years. Wow. So, plus I well, really enjoy reading. I, I really right, enjoy I doing these readings. All right. Well, let me ask this question. What surprises then you most about being a poet or writer in general? I think what surprises me most is what comes out of my head. I actually wrote a poem about where does poetry come from, and one of the lines is, I never know what's going to come out of my head, (laughs) or something to that effect. So, yes, it's always surprising. Now, do you write because of the potential accolades to have book published, or do you write to get it out of your system? <laughs> I would say I write because I enjoy the writing process. Okay. I really enjoy seeing the words come together on the page. And then if someone else enjoys it enough to publish it, that's great. And if someone else enjoys hearing me read it in person, that's even better. Well, so I really, one of, the, one of the differences between, to me, visual art and writing is mm-hmm. that you can hang a piece in a gallery and, you know, maybe 30 people will come through with that. And maybe someone will buy it and then whoever visits their home will see it. But poetry and writing can be seen by people Many, 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 many people, depending on where it's published or how it's circulated. Mm-hmm. So to me, it feels like it can have a much larger impact than visual art, which seems like a strange thing to say, but I really feel mm-hmm. that when I have a poem published, there's a chance I'm going to reach a whole lot of people. Wow. Wow. I admire you so much. Well, thank you. You've grown on me, friend. <laughs> I... <laughs> Is there an audio book in your future? No. <laughs> oh, 
I can't tell you how tired my voice is at this point. <laughs> and we've only been talking for an hour. My voice doesn't hold up that well. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you so, a couple more things. <laughs> Where can listeners find your work? Oh, the best place to start is on my website, which is mm-hmm. <clears throat> franabramspoetry.com. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the, the, the my two books and how to order them, how to find them. This book is available wherever books are, are sold. Or so, yes. I know that it's on Amazon. What's next for you? After Pythagoras. You got another book in you? After Pythagoras. Yes. I, yes there's another book out there circulating. Um, of course, who knows if it'll get picked up. But um, I wrote a book called Taking Form, Taking Shape, and it's a collection of books of poems that are in form like um, a pantoum and a villanelle and concrete poems, which are an actual shape where the words and the lines form a shape. It's one of my favorite things to do. It takes hours. And Does it? I really enjoy it. So that's out there. And then I'm working on a collection um, called Nothing Ever Happens Here. And it's basically about the quotidian things that happen every day. So it's about, there's a poem about garbage collection. Mm-hmm. There's um, just poems about the common ordinary, try to, to raise the, the visibility and, and think further about common, ordinary, everyday things. Mm. That's you know, what, that's what's on my drawing board now. <laughs> very nice. We've reached the end of our poetic journey. And it oh. made me think, life happens sometimes regardless of the plans that you make. Sometimes you I come into your own. Completely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like like when I flubbed the opening of the show. <laughs> Do you think I planned that friend? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well I could not speak. <laughs> I'm gonna think about that forever. Uh, <laughs> huh. If you ever want to come back <laughs> I'm not sure whether you will. <laughs> There's an open door for you because <laughs> I want to hear Pythagoras' work. The poet who loves Pythagoras. Okay. That, that'll be out in March, and um, I'll make sure to get back in touch. Well, March is also Women's History Month, and the whole month on this program is dedicated to women. So if you'd like to be a part of it, mm-hmm. just let me know. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning okay. to the end, it's about women. So think about that. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, yes. We try over here. Well, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for just being you and telling and speaking your truth about your lived experience. I wish more people did that. And how you well, are able you, to, yes, able to, to change your trajectory from what someone else felt it should be. That couldn't have been easy. That's why I admire you.
well, I hope the book speaks for itself, and I hope that people will understand. Um, there was so much more that could have mm-hmm. that I could have said, and I hope that what I have said will tell the story that people will right. understand. Well, I want you to ride the third wave out of here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm going to join you on the third wave myself. <laughs> All right, thank everybody. Thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> thank you for hanging in there with me. All right, good people out there in the okay. world. We've reached the end. And as I share every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, friend. Good night, Michael. Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com. See who is episode I have ever.